millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Seventy-five years ago, the then British Prime Minister Winston Churchill announced the end of World War II in Europe. Yesterday morning... At 2.41 a.m., at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. The German war is therefore at an end. Once the celebrations died down, the task of rebuilding shattered nations had to begin. But the years that followed saw the coming of the nuclear age, the Cold War, decolonialism and the rise of American supremacy. So how exactly did World War II shape the modern world? Charlie Mills has been putting the big questions to Dr. Charlie Hall, lecturer in modern European history at the University of Kent. This is How and Why History. Charlie, thanks for joining us. How did the world recover from the destruction of World War II? It's a big question, and I think it varied from country to country. So a lot of urban centres in Europe and also in Asia had suffered enormous large-scale bombardment, so were essentially in ruins. So physical rebuilding was a big part of that process. But obviously this wasn't something that could happen quickly, particularly in countries like, for example, Britain, where the Blitz had laid waste large parts of East London because these countries were cash-strapped at the end of the war. They didn't have the resources. Beyond that kind of physical destruction, the destruction of cities and urban areas, there's a huge human cost of the war that has to be sorted at the end. So there's a massive refugee crisis in Europe, groups of people who are broadly termed displaced persons, who had been uprooted for various reasons, partly because of the Nazi occupation or the Holocaust, partly because of the fighting towards the end of the war, particularly between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, and also because at the end of the war, certain borders are redrawn in Europe, so people find themselves the wrong side of an ethnic border, for instance. So a lot of people are moving around at this time. And both that kind of physical destruction and that refugee crisis have economic and political impacts as well. So we see in Britain, for example, the election of a majority Labour government for the first time in Britain in a historic landslide in 1945, because so many people felt that they had suffered so much during the war, they'd seen so much destruction, They'd fought, they'd sacrificed, they felt they deserved a better future and they wanted to help build that. So that is something that kind of emerges in a positive sense, I suppose, from the destruction of the Second World War. 
Who were the major players rebuilding Europe in the post-war period? So the two obvious answers here are, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union. So both of them invest huge sums of money in their kind of respective spheres of influence in Europe. For the USA, that's under the terms of the Marshall Plan, which is enormous amounts of funding offered to countries that need to rebuild after the war. But this money comes with terms and conditions. Most notably, the sense that if you're going to take money from the United States, you need to be in the United States ideological camp. You need to be pro-capitalist, pro-West. Equally, the Soviet Union invests in countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, with the same caveat. You need to be on our side moving forward. Now, just because you have the US and the Soviet Union pumping this money in, it doesn't mean that the European countries themselves don't have agency to do their own thing. So Germany, for instance, plays a big role in reshaping its own role on the world stage. Britain, on the other hand, is kind of adjusting to the fact that it used to be a world power, the world power, arguably, in the years before the Second World War, now is a, a second-rate power. It's taking a back seat to the US and the Soviet Union. And then you have other countries that kind of find a third way. So the key example would be Yugoslavia, which is a socialist country after the Second World War, a government founded by the very people who'd fought against Nazi occupation during the war, but actually moves away from Soviet support and kind of forges its own path and describes itself as being non-aligned in the Cold War. So it's not just a story of the US and the Soviet Union dictating affairs in Europe. Other countries do have a role to play as well. What were the repercussions for Germany immediately after the war? So, I mean, the obvious one is colossal defeat. Unlike at the end of the First World War, Germany is forced to an unconditional surrender and all of its territories are completely occupied by foreign troops. So the country is divided into four occupation zones and one is handed to each of the four main allied powers, so Britain, France, the Soviet Union and the United States. The Nazi leadership by this point are either dead, captured or missing. So the running of the country is handed over to members of the allied military forces, but also later to civilians from those countries as well. There's also a moral cost that needs to be paid by Germany, and there's a sort of baying for blood from many of the citizens of the allied countries and also from countries that suffered under the yoke of Nazi occupation. So leading figures of the Nazi regime, those that had survived and been captured, were put on trial, most famously the Nuremberg trial in the end of 1945 and into 1946, while also there's a programme of denazification. So this process where the allied powers tried to remove all traces of Nazi ideology from every part of life in Germany, whether that was pulling down street signs that said Adolf Hitlerstrasse on them, or it was re-educating teachers and doctors and lawyers so that they would no longer follow kind of Nazi procedure. That was a problematic process and one that wasn't always very successful, but at least an attempt was made to kind of purge the Nazi idea from German life. But I think in terms of the impact on the average German, if such a thing exists, is that life was very hard in those years following the war. As I've mentioned, cities and urban areas were decimated, they were in ruins, so many were homeless or living in very cramped conditions, sharing many families sharing a single room, for instance. Um, there's poverty, there's starvation, there's very little food available. However, as soon as we get through kind of 1948, 1949, things begin to improve quite rapidly, particularly in West Germany, which has been described as experiencing an economic miracle in the early 1950s because it recovered from this fairly parlous state of affairs to essentially an economic powerhouse in Europe by the end of the 1950s. So although things started very poorly, the recovery was remarkably swift. What did the defeat of Germany mean for the Allied powers then moving forward? So I suppose the most important thing is that for almost 75 years, Germany had been seen as one of the biggest threats to peace in Europe. Since the unification of Germany in 1871, it had constantly threatened war against one or other powers in Europe, against France in the Franco-Prussian War, and then obviously against France and Russia and Britain in the First World War, and then again in the Second World War. So there's a sense now that Germany is no longer a threat. So that changes the power dynamic 
in Europe in quite a meaningful way. But what it does by removing Germany from the equation is you bring the two Cold War camps, one dominated by the USA and the other dominated by the Soviet Union, face to face across that inner German border. With Germany split in half, they're facing off across that border. And sort of wrangling over the fate of Germany is one of the key flashpoints of the Cold War, particularly the early Cold War. What is going to happen to this country that is so important to Europe, it sits at the heart of Europe, it had been core to European affairs in the years preceding 1945. How are we going to reshape this country and the continent as a whole? As an example, in 1948, West Berlin, so the half of Berlin that is controlled by the Western Allies, is a little island in the middle of the eastern zone of Germany. And over a dispute over currency reform, the Soviets blockade it and prevent any supplies getting in by road or by rail or by inland waterway. And instead of just giving in and letting West Germany fall to the Soviet control, the Western Allies decide to mount this incredible logistical operation of bringing supplies in by air. And at this point, kind of cargo supply by air is still new science, essentially. So they're learning how to do this. And we get what's called the Berlin Airlift, this massive process of bringing in goods by air to Berlin throughout 1948 and into 1949. So at its peak, a plane was landing in West Berlin every 30 seconds bringing supplies. And on one particularly successful day, almost 13,000 tonnes were delivered by air. So this was a remarkably extensive, but also remarkably expensive operation, which was about the West showing you can't bully us the Soviet Union. You can isolate this part of Berlin, you can prevent us getting supplies in by the conventional routes, but we will not be cowed by this, we will find a way around it. And a similar mood emerges again in 1961 with the building of the Berlin Wall, tension that, that brings the two superpowers closer at least to an open confrontation. There's one other thing that I think is worth mentioning in terms of how the fate of Germany influenced the Allies, which is that because they were responsible for the population of Germany, and because the population of Germany was potentially starving, there was a real effort by the Allies to ensure they didn't starve. So partly we see the airlift, but what we also see, for instance, in Britain is that they introduced bread rationing, which they had avoided all the way through the Second World War. And they have to bring it in after the war in order to have enough grain to feed Germany. So there's a really interesting sense that former enemies are now becoming friends to an extent. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. What did World War II signify for right-wing politics? Where did fascism go? 
The obvious narrative is that fascism disappears in 1945, the defeat of Germany and of Italy, and the trials sort of show that fascism as a system just couldn't work, particularly, I think, as the horrors of the Holocaust are revealed and people associate fascist ideology with genocide and with other crimes against humanity, which incidentally, crimes against humanity is a new term, as is genocide, that emerge out of the Second World War because they needed a new way to describe these horrors. So the ideological system of fascism is no longer seen as a credible choice. That said, it does sort of limp on under a slightly different name in, in some countries. So in Spain, under General Francisco Franco, um, it, it stays a kind of fascist state until 1975. And similarly in Portugal, another right-wing authoritarian regime stays there until 1968. So there are examples of it not disappearing. And we do see other kind of right-wing authoritarian, maybe military regimes that aren't quite fascist, but share some similarities. For instance, in Greece and also outside of Europe in South America, in Chile, for instance. Interestingly, these some of these right-wing regimes have sort of support from the USA or some of the USA's allies because they are, are a bastion again in the fight against communism. Better to have a right-wing regime than a left-wing one. So that's part of the story there. I think more broadly in Europe, what we see is a move not towards the left so much, apart from perhaps Labour's big win in Britain in 1945, but actually a, a return to kind of the conventional politics of the right, conservatism, very safe pair of hands kind of approach. We see that in West Germany with the government of Konrad Adenauer, and we do see it in the USA as well with Dwight Eisenhower, the Second World War general, who then goes on to become president in 1952. So we see a kind of return to that idea of traditional conservative values rather than the extreme right-wing views of fascists. How did the war impact notions of nationalism, immigration and borderlands? So it has a huge impact on that. It's a war that's driven, I think, partly by nationalism, by borders. And then at the end of it, some of those problems still need to be untangled and, and solved. So the map of Europe is redrawn partly in the years after the Second World War, although arguably less dramatically than had been the case at the end of the First World War. And countries where groups of partisan fighters or freedom fighters had fought against Nazi or even Soviet occupation, then started to form governments in those areas. So we do see sort of nationalist movements taking power in some parts of Europe in the immediate post-war era. But as is often the case, they would end up falling under the sway of one of the two superpowers. And particularly in Eastern Europe, we see nationalist governments toppled and replaced by communist governments in the kind of employ of the Soviet Union. From Stettin in the Baltic, to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Budapest. The other thing we see, I think, in terms of the movement of peoples is some examples of mass immigration, many people fleeing the horrors of the, of the Second World War, but also fleeing the horrors of what comes next, particularly Soviet subjugation in Eastern Europe. So they flee into Western Europe or onto the USA or elsewhere. We also see Holocaust survivors moving to the newly founded state of Israel, so therefore changing the, the makeup of the Middle East quite dramatically. And the other thing that is a kind of knock-on effect of the Second World War is we have decolonization. We have soldiers who had fought, for instance, for Britain from parts of the world like India, newly independent nations, but also a movement of people from those nations to Britain, to the imperial heartland. I think most famously for Britain, it's the, it's the Windrush migrants who come from the Caribbean, brought in to help rebuild a shattered nation at the end of the Second World War and treated as British citizens, even if they had been born in the Caribbean. So there is a movement of people that is indirectly, I suppose, triggered by the end of the Second World War. What influence did World War II have upon the development of technology? As with the First World War, the Second World War had definitely been a war of invention. The need to find an edge over your opponent had driven all the warring powers to invest heavily in science and technology. 
And we often think about the Second World War as this kind of laboratory war. But I think it's important to remember that the war ends with the same technology with which it began. So we still see the war essentially won by infantry soldiers, by tanks, by aerial bombardment, by submarines, by ships. These are the key weapons of the war at the end as they are at the beginning. That's not to say we don't see major innovation. The most obvious, the most substantial development is the atomic bomb dropped on Japan in August 1945 to speed up the end of the Pacific War. And that new technology then shapes the Cold War. That's what brings these two superpowers so close to fighting, but never quite to the point where we have open conflict because of the fear of the destructive power of the atomic bomb. And obviously that becomes more of an issue once the Soviets detonate their own atomic bomb in 1949. There are plenty of other examples of technology that emerges from the Second World War that are still a a regular part of, of life, or at least of conflict today. So jet aircraft, guided missiles, radar, obviously atomic energy, atomic power is an indirect result of that. Chemical weapons, the nerve agents that we talk about so often now. And I think missiles are an interesting one to talk about briefly because V2 rockets that fall on London in the last year of the war are the foundation of the space program in America. It's the same technology repurposed to send man to the moon in 1969 based on weapons that were used at the end of the Second World War. So there's often surprising connections between military technology and kind of civilian developments later on. Where in the world do you think the Second World War had its largest impact? That's very hard to judge. So much of the fighting happened in Europe. It drastically affected Europe, as some things I've already mentioned, particularly the kind of destruction of Germany, the the splitting of Germany up into two halves, the removal of that kind of German threat in the centre of Europe. That's really important. And in a way, European integration and, and what later became the European Union emerges as a result of that, of a desire not to have another major European war, but also to kind of rein in potentially dangerous powers like Germany and even France. Now we have a European Union that's dominated by Germany in a way that's almost a product of the Second World War. Equally, what we have is is a shift of power away from Europe, which had previously been the centre of the world. In terms of politics and diplomacy, power was held in Europe. The capitals of Britain and France and Germany and Austria, these were places where things happened that mattered for the whole world. That starts to change. The USA, Russia, China, these are now the powerful countries. So the focus of global power is moving away, I think, from Europe at this time. And then I think as a sort of knock-on effect, we see that widespread decolonisation. We see the end of empire over the next sort of 20 to 30 years from the end of the war. And particularly that means that new countries are created in, in Africa and Asia. New groups of people are having a voice on the diplomatic stage. But also that's feeding into that Cold War environment. We're seeing new countries being born and both the USA and the Soviet Union fighting over which camp that country will end up in. So we see a lot of civil war in parts of the world that I think is, again, it's an indirect impact of the Second World War, but the the link is definitely there. It's difficult to predict, but essentially, how might the modern world have been different had Germany won the war? I think the real problem at the heart of that question is what a German victory would even look like. I think that's so hard for us to imagine. The nature of the German state, the Nazi state, was self-destructive. It was a spiral, a radical spiral towards genocide, towards violence, towards conquest, that ultimately was never going to stabilise. Had they been able to defeat Britain and the Soviet Union in in the sort of 1941-1942 period, I don't think that would have meant a peaceful German-dominated Europe. It would have meant a German-dominated Europe that was spiralling increasingly into greater chaos even if they had been able to keep the USA out of the war by one means or another. I think the internal structure of the Nazi state was so weak and chaotic and reliant to a point on Hitler that had he died and he was not a well man by the end of the Second World War, the power struggle there would have probably precipitated some kind of internal collapse. But of course, as you say, it's it's very difficult to know. Had it survived, had Germany survived and dominated much of Europe, 
a lot of the kind of speculative fiction that we read about an alternative ending of the Second World War suggests a kind of new Cold War emerging between Nazi Germany and the United States, two global powers, not active conflict with each other, but sort of glancing with hostility across the ocean at one another. Um, and there, there's some, something convincing about that, that perhaps the United States would have been reluctant to enter war against Germany had Britain and the Soviet Union already been taken out. But I guess the main thing to say on this question is that ultimately would have meant increased and prolonged suffering for the peoples of occupied Europe, particularly the groups that the Nazi regime targeted most vigorously. So the Jews, obviously, Slavic peoples, Roma and Sinti groups and others who were deemed undesirable, they would have continued to be victimised. They would have continued to suffer in any system that we consider a German victory in the Second World War. What do you think was one of the most significant changes then that was brought about by the war? So alongside things that I've mentioned, such as the kind of movement of the focus of power away from Europe to other parts of the world, I think that's really significant. We still live in that world today where power is held elsewhere. The emergence of atomic weapons, but also the the missiles that could carry them from one continent to another at the push of a button changed the way we think about war. No longer was it we have to mobilise huge citizen armies and send them to fight abroad. The logistical cost of that, the moral cost of that, the financial cost of it, now it was war could happen in a matter of moments from a tap of a keyboard. That has changed, I think, the way states relate to each other, but also the way we conceive of military action. It's become a very different world to how it was in, in 1939. From a cultural perspective, the thing that's changed is growing American influence, is that as America became a global superpower and as so much of Europe fell under American sway and other parts of the world as well, and then certainly since 1989, with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, American domination almost globally, so much of our culture, so much of our economy is dominated by this American model of capitalism. And I think that is a, is a real long-term effect of the, of the Second World War that we don't often necessarily associate with what happened in 1945. Why has the Second World War been so widely remembered? If we have to track it back to its very beginning, it happens during the Second World War itself. It's already conversations are going on about how the war will be remembered, not least because the countries involved are trying to decide what they're fighting for. What is it that they're trying to achieve? And they, they're having those discussions in 1942, in 1943. What are their war aims? So that is kind of part of shaping the story of the Second World War. Did Britain and America and the Soviet Union go to war to destroy the evils of Nazism? That's perhaps only partially convincing. So there's a debate going on about what the purpose of the war is right from that early point. Since then, I think that fascination has grown partly because, again, of fascination with the Nazis. I think it's this idea about wanting to understand the horrors of the Holocaust, wanting to understand this kind of mad regime, chaotic regime with this fascinating figure of Hitler at the top of it. People want to learn from the horrors, learn to make sure they don't repeat those same mistakes. And as such, that becomes a discussion about the war, about what, how do we combat when we see a regime in another part of the world that looks a bit like the Nazi regime? Should we go to war with them straight away? Or should, you know, is there, are there other routes or do we end up appeasing them again and all those kind of mistakes? So I think the desire to apply the lessons of the, of the Second World War to more contemporary situations is a big reason why we're so fascinated. And I think that's also exacerbated by a kind of obsession in certain countries, and Britain is perhaps the most guilty of this, with glorifying the Second World War as perhaps the greatest moment in the national history, at least in the last sort of hundred years or so. It's right at the heart of the national story in Britain. And I think that's often not a very critical look at the story. It's kind of a myth, if you like, of, of the way the Second World War was fought. But it, it's, it's something that we see come up again and again to serve all kinds of political goals. So I think that's why the Second World War has remained so important and why it's remembered so vividly, if often incorrectly, because it, it means something to us today in a way that maybe other conflicts don't. Charlie, thank you for your time. Thank you. How and why history.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.